0: Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Speaker Discovery Series podcast. I'm Laura Champion, founder of the Speaker Discovery Series and host of the show you're about to listen to. This episode of the Speaker Discovery Series is centered around the theme of love. So there were a lot of laughs and a lot of tears that night, and I think you really enjoy the stories you're about to hear. And I highly, highly encourage you to stick with it all the way to the end. The last story of the night is not one to be missed. This version of the Speaker Discovery Series was extra special because it was a pre-Congress networking event. For those of you listening, if you haven't yet registered for AFP Greater Toronto Congress 2018, please do so immediately. It is an investment in yourself and I can't recommend it more highly. This year's theme of Congress is disruption. And so by having a speaker's Discovery Series as the kickoff event, that was pretty disruptive. I can't thank you all enough for listening to this podcast, attending these events, tweeting and writing about this event. It means a lot to me and it means we can keep doing it. We don't have the next theme or date picked out just yet, but we're getting very close. So keep your eyes and ears open for the next call for proposals. We absolutely want to hear your story as well. Finally, this episode is brought to you by the Sponsorship Collective, and there's a short ad for them in the middle of the episode if you'd like to learn more. We can't do events like this without wonderful sponsors, so thank you, Sponsorship Collective. Enough for me, though. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Oh, I love that. We're already a welcoming audience. Uh, welcome! You're here. Thank you for coming. Uh, I'm so excited to have you all here. Um, oh,
1: golf applause
0: uh thank you for being here for the fourth season we call them seasons of the speaker discovery series um we're so excited and the storytellers tonight uh no offense to the other seasons for storytellers in the room are gonna blow your socks off um the stories are unbelievable and for those of you who don't have kleenex get it at intermission Uh, My name is Laura Champion, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, I'm a fundraising strategist at Blakely, and I am the education chair for Congress this year. Um, And I am the founder of this event. I don't know, I had to look at my notes for that. Uh, (laughs) uh, Before we get started, uh, I'm going to ask Mithoni Karaoke to join me on stage to do a land acknowledgement. Thank you, Laura. So I'm going to ask that we... Take a moment and acknowledge the land that we're on by standing up. So the
2: factory theater, for those of you who don't know, it, it stands on traditional land of the territory of the Mississauga New Credit, the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinabe, and the Huron wendat Nation. We want to acknowledge that they are the stewards and the caretakers of this land. Thank you for participating. Thank you.
0: So I, uh, I'm so excited that tonight's event is uh, our pre-Congress event. Uh, so this is a big format change for the pre-Congress event. And it was a, an exciting opportunity to introduce uh, some of the new audience to the Speaker Discovery Series. And for those of you not going to Congress, I'm going to talk a lot about it. Um, Tonight's going to have a much different feel than most of the AFP events you've probably attended in the past. Um, as you can tell, uh, it's more t-shirts and jeans as opposed to Congress or other events where it's kind of suits and slideshows. Um, and so I'll just give you a quick explanation on what you can expect this evening, and then we'll get right to it. Uh, so this event started in January of 2017 um, as an idea that I had. Uh, As an education committee member and chair, I would hear on a regular basis that we were not getting new speakers into the pipeline uh, and that people were getting tired of seeing the same faces over and over. But then when a new speaker application would come across the table, the concern would be they just don't have enough experience. So it was very much the the old waiter problem of you can't get a job as a server until you've had a job as a server. Um, So I turned to the thing I know best, and that's podcasts. And podcasts told me, um, do a storytelling show. Uh, because it eliminates the barriers. There's gonna be absolutely no props, no slideshows tonight. Some people will hold notes and that's it. They're here to tell you a story from their personal experience that will somehow relate to fundraising and our theme of tonight, love. Um, And they're getting scored at the same time. So we have three beautiful judges in the audience today. Um, We have Sonia Swarczyk, who's in the front up here. Uh, Juniper Losiento, who I can't see somewhere, and Andrea Orr, and all three of these beautiful ladies. Uh, all three of these beautiful ladies have international speaking experience um, and a great deal of experience dealing with AFP. Um, Sonia was my mentor on the Education Committee for a lot of years, so has a lot of experience um, looking at speakers critically and giving them feedback. So tonight, while the, our new storytellers are on stage, these three beautiful ladies are going to be scoring them in secret. It's not American Idol. Um, and all of the speakers will receive written feedback after, along with a score. And they can use that score to then apply to bigger conferences, should they choose to do so. Our speakers have also been coached the entire time that they have been part of this process. So they applied to be a speaker. They were assigned a mentor. And we have coached them through. So when you see them on stage tonight, you're going to go, I can't believe they haven't spoken before. They're fabulous and we're all gonna love them. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun night for them. I'm sure that they are very nervous in this moment. Uh, so as an audience, I'm going to encourage you to be open and loving tonight. Um, some of the stories tonight are tough uh, and what we need you to be is open-hearted and ready to accept these stories um, because we're, we're a group of fundraisers who love each other. So let's show each other that love. I should mention the alumni in the audience. I did see Mo Waja, who spoke at season three. And I am happy to say that Mo is speaking at Congress this year, so the pathway works. Um, I think that is all the housekeeping I wanted to get to in completely the wrong order. Um, so enough of me. Uh, for those of you who have been here before, we do like to have a, a speaker come up who is a bit more experienced uh, to do a bit of an icebreaker speech because it is unfair for us to send someone up here cold after me. Um, So we like to warm them up a little. Uh, I am uh, 100% grateful that our icebreaker speaker tonight is the chair of this year's Congress, Anne Rosenfield. Um, Over the last 12 months, and has become a bit of a mentor to me, uh, showing me the ropes with uh, dealing with politics in some cases, or maybe being just slightly more political than I should be. but has been an absolute joy to work with and I think is going to bring um, something more to Congress this year with all the work that she has put in. So please welcome Ann to the stage for her story.
1: A complicated love. About 18 times this summer, I got up really early and I jumped out of bed and I put old clothes on I was out the door on a Saturday or a Sunday morning. And that's because I volunteer for this great fruit charity. So people register their home fruit trees, and then a group of volunteers come, and we harvest their fruit, and a third goes to the homeowner, a third goes to a local charity, and a third goes to the group of volunteers. So it's this lovely, neighborly circle of generosity. And there's so much about this. The first piece of this generosity is I'm there on my bike in my old clothes, bright blue sky, beautiful morning. And step one is I show up because we've got depots of equipment hidden all over the city of Toronto. Most of them are people's garages. So at 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning, I show up at a stranger's house, my ratty old clothes, and I just kind of boldly walk past their house, around the side, to the garage, punch in their garage access code, and I pick up the equipment for our charity. So I'm getting the pick poles and the scale and compost bags and another big cargo bike, and I'm wheeling that out from outside of a stranger's house on the way and that's the first piece of generosity and neighborliness. And then the second piece is, I go show up at some stranger's house, and I knock on the door, and they may be home or they may not be home. These are the people who have said, I don't know what to do with that apricot tree in my front yard, or I, I, I've made so much applesauce, apple butter, apple crumble. I, apple trees, by the way, can produce up to 600 pounds of fruit. I, I, I can't deal with it anymore. Often they're not home, so I am again just waltzing into the backyard of a complete stranger's home. Often they'll let me know that they know I'm coming, so they have registered their tree, by the way, so I'm not just <laughs> randomly showing up. But they let me know I'm coming. They often they'll leave the gate to the backyard open. They'll have their ladder sitting up against the tree, and. Wonderfully, many people will leave a jug of water with a cover over it and some glasses because even at eight on a Sunday morning in August, it is really hot. So then the third piece of this circle of generosity and neighborliness comes when I walk to the front of the house and I greet four or five volunteers. We are all strangers to each other, And because it's a little intimidating to go walk straight into a stranger's front yard or backyard and start picking fruit off of their tree, I like to greet people on the front. This is a great group of volunteers. They're hardworking. We... Compare recipes, and if I'm super lucky when I'm leading one of these picks, there's one person that's what I always call the monkey volunteer that can get to the top of the tree for that elusive fruit that's always just out of reach. And there's this moment when I'm in the middle of one of these fruit picks, and I look up, and I'm reaching for the reddest of cherry red cherries and there's a vivid green leaf and a blue sky that goes on forever. And I feel in that moment love. I love everything. I am content. It's, it's truly full of awe. And then I'm back to work, and we finish picking all the fruit, and we divide it all up, and we leave some in the basket for the homeowner. And that's the end of the third piece. And then the fourth part of this beautiful, virtuous love and generosity is I go and I show up at a local charity. I knock on the door, and I say, hi, I'm Anne, and I'm here with 20 pounds of cherries, 10 pounds of mulberries, 40 pounds of pears. I'm, I'm here with fruit for you. These are shelters. These are food banks. These are places where people who don't maybe have the chance to eat a lot of fresh fruits, they can have some fruit. And I would say, yeah, we, we, we picked it on Augusta Avenue. We picked it on, there is actually a tree on Bartlett Avenue that's a pear tree. We picked it on Bartlett Avenue and they say thank you, and I say thank you, and they say thank you. And it's kind of this funny thing where we're all thanking each other. And it's amazing, and I love it. But the thing is about this beautiful, virtuous, and generous cycle, it's all underpinned by privilege. See, I'm showing up at that charity on Sunday morning at noon, I'm not working on Sunday at noon. Low-paid frontline service staff are working at noon. And they are disproportionately not white middle-aged women. And we know the research tells us that it's very hard for people of color to advance up the ranks into leadership. And what else do I do? I walk into strangers' backyards wearing shabby clothing. I did 18 fruit picks last summer. Not for a minute would a young man of African descent be able to walk into 36 backyards, 18 for the equipment and 18 for the fruit, without having someone call the police on him. So I still love that blue sky, those green leaves, and that amazing cherries, but it's a complicated love. Thank you.
0: What a great way to start the show. Thank you, Anne. That was magical. Uh, Two things I forgot. Uh, first of all, for those of you who are tweeting, and thank you, Janice, I saw some already, uh, the hashtag tonight, hashtag AFPSDS, and we highly encourage lots of pictures, lots of tweets, please do that. Uh, and the other piece, and the reason, though, uh, we are using a microphone, even though I'm very loud, is we are recording for a podcast tonight, so for those of you who did not get to come to the first three Speaker Discovery Series, uh, please look it up on iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, everything. Um, On all of the main podcast uh, catchers, uh, and you can hear all the other amazing stories that we've told. So, are we ready for a first time storyteller? Our first new speaker tonight is Jarvis Strong. Uh, Jarvis is a consultant uh, and client development manager at Think Canada. And uh, Jarvis is one of the most personable people I have ever met, Um, and today was the first time I actually met him in person. We just did uh, a phone call, and I felt so loved just on a phone call, Um, and I'm so pleased to be sharing his joy and passion with you, especially given the theme of tonight. So welcome, Jarvis.
3: Well, thanks, Laura. Good to be here. I have a tendency to ramble, and we're aiming for seven minutes, so I'm putting my timer on. Those lights are bright. Good evening, it's great to be here. Um, like many of you in the audience tonight, I consider myself an accidental fundraiser. Never in my wildest dreams did I would, would I have imagined that I would be uh, asking people for money, making donations to support my own life and my family. It just would have never entered my mind but I'm going to tell you a little bit about how it all came about and how I fell in love in the process. Uh, so about uh, seven years ago, I uh, took a career change. It was probably my fifth, fourth, something like that. We, I forget what they say about our generation, but I think we're due for about five. And um, I left what I was doing. I was a kids' camp director, and I decided I wanted to do something uh, more community-based. So I took a job, and I moved to Collingwood, Ontario. Pardon me, Collingwood, Ontario, to be the new general manager of the Collingwood YMCA Recreation Center. Fantastic job! I had many different hats that I was wearing during the role. I was overseeing the programs, helping the membership staff, all sorts of different stuff. Uh, and a small part of the role was some fundraising, and I was a little nervous about this when I took the role, but I, I took it on and. On an annual basis, we had what we called the Strong Kids uh, Campaign, where we would fundraise so that we could provide fee-assisted memberships and free camp for kids and things like that. So I helped rally a, a team of canvassers to help with some donations. I helped oversee a big signature event that we called the Spinathon. Uh, picture 60 uh, stationary bikes in a gymnasium with... Um, CNC Music Factory on loop for about six hours. Something like that, that's pretty close to the mark, I would say, and I also spent some time uh, touring some major donors around. We happened to be in a capital campaign, and I later learned that was called stewardship. So I was doing some fundraising and I didn't even realize it. So fast forward about six months, I took a new job with Big Brothers, Big Sisters of the Georgian Triangle up in uh, Collingwood. And I was very excited about this. And I knew I was really going to like it because working with kids and youth causes was the common thread of my career. Even before I had a career, I was 13, first job working at a community center. So I knew I was really going to like it. And if you're not familiar with Big Brothers, Big Sisters... They've been around for about 100, no, over 100 years now. And the concept is very simple. It's an age-old concept of a someone in a community, a neighbor, seeing a kid in their community that maybe just needs a little bit of extra time and attention, a little bit of guidance. So what they do at Big Brothers Big Sisters is they have a series of programs where they match up volunteer mentors with mentees, young kids aged oh six to 16, something like that, Pretty simple stuff. Some people really jump right in, they do the community program, and they're giving often their whole Saturday or something like that. Other people are visiting a child an hour a week at a school. So it's a wide gamut of things. Anyways, back to fundraising. Um, (laughs) I could keep going, but that's not why I'm here tonight. I knew fundraising was a part of the role, and... They told me that getting into it, but I, th- I don't know, I think I was just so excited about working for a kids' organization. I was like, yeah, no problem. This'll, we'll be able to make that happen. And so I spent about a week or two in the role and it quickly became very apparent that this job was almost all fundraising. I did have to oversee a small team of about four staff. I was responsible for the well-being of volunteers and kids. There was the operations and all those sorts of things. But if I didn't raise $300,000 The lights were going off, the doors were closing, and a couple hundred kids that relied on these programs to be happy, healthy little people were going to have nothing. And that really made me sweat. I started to get pretty nervous, and this became very apparent this was going to be a trial by fire. And uh, so, you know, I lost a couple of nights sleep over that, but I took a deep breath, and when I get overwhelmed in life, I try to keep things simple. And my sort of uh, emphasis uh, through my journey has always been focusing on relationships, getting to know people, building strong relationships. And so that's what I did. I went out and I met the volunteers. I had lunch with the board, went out for coffee. I went and visited the kids' programs, played basketball and a lot of dodgeball, a couple, took a couple of dodgeballs on the side of the head. Um, it's all you know workplace hazards. Um, and it was fun. I had a great time. Um, and it was feeling good. And, you know, I was, the organization's great. I think Big Brothers, Big Sisters, if you're a little bit familiar, it has uh, this air of being kind of a warm, fuzzy, nice-to-have sort of community service program. And I was definitely feeling that. But after a couple of months, uh, I was back to my worries about fundraising. And one day, uh, while I was worrying about the budget planning and things like that, in walked little brother Tyler. We call them littles, and we call the volunteers bigs. That's what we do. So Tyler walks in, and I was pretty chummy with the kids. That was, I mean, that's mainly why I took the job, because I thought I'd get to hang out with all these kids and things like that. Um, And so I said, Hey, Tyler, how are you? How's it going? How was the weekend? And he looked at me and he said, Jarvis, I had an awesome weekend. And I said, Oh, that's great, Tyler. Wow. I'm really glad to hear that. Like, why was it so awesome? What happened? He's like, well, you know, I usually hang out with big brother Pete on Saturdays. And I was like, yeah, that's great. I know you guys are a great match. You're good friends. what did you guys do? And he said, well, we were doing a bit of this and that. We had to run some errands before we went for a hike with the dog, but we went to Home Depot and we went down this aisle and it was massive. It was like three stories high and it was all full of nails and screws and staples and stuff. And Jarvis, I don't know if you knew this, but there is a screw named (laughs) Philip. And I had the kind of reaction that some of you people are having right now. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? And why do you remember this? This does not seem remarkable. And I had a good laugh with it, and I said, really? Oh yeah, that's right. The little star faced one, that's cool. And I started really paying attention and Tyler had an interest in carpentry and building. That's something that him and uh, Pete did on the weekends and things like that. So this was huge. He happened to be one of those kids that was a single parent family and he didn't have, a, in this case, he didn't have a male role model. Not that you need to be a male role model to be uh, playing with hammers and nails, but that was the situation in his life, thank you. I'm just saying, I'm not making assumptions. But uh, this was a big deal for Tyler, and uh, it was a little thing that I kind of took for granted, but it stuck with me. It was really just in my mind for the next couple days. And so as I traveled around visiting programs, meeting volunteers, I started paying even closer attention to the stories. And I heard stories that made me laugh, like that one, and I heard stories that made me cry. I heard stories where the relationship didn't work out, where the big poured their heart in and the kid who went home every night to a situation of dire poverty with violence in the home and things like that the kid behavior just was so challenging that the volunteer couldn't cope Uh, and you know some of the matches didn't work out so I heard some really heartbreaking things I heard volunteers coming in and sort of just venting of the situations that some of the kids were living in not all Uh, But I heard amazing, and I heard scary. I heard stories of little brothers growing up and being the best man at the big brother's wedding. Very, very cool stuff. And that's not the goal. Those sorts of things do happen in this program. But really, what I really came to realize was that it was about the little things. It was about Philip the Screw, those little, little learnings that some of us take for granted. But when you take all those little things in life, all those little learnings, those little anecdotes little moments with your friend, and you roll them together over weeks and months and years, you build a relationship. You build trust, you build love, you build a friend, sometimes family. And I could, if I had more than seven minutes, I could tell you about that. Um, This was powerful stuff. And it was at that moment that I realized I was in love with my cause. I was starstruck. This was a big deal. And I quickly became obsessed with this organization. How can I do more? And the reason, or sorry, the, what I decided was, well, the best way for me to get more kids like Tyler out there with volunteers to have these life-changing experiences, which are not warm, fuzzy friendships, by the way, when properly done, these could be life-changing uh, interventions of poverty. This is this is a big deal. These are essential services. This isn't just warm and fuzzy. So I had a fire in my belly to do more. And the ticket was, Jarvis, learn to become a better fundraiser. Learn everything you can. And so that's what I did. I found a mentor who, uh, one of the previous executive directors actually, took me under their wing. And I learned about events. I learned about major donors. I learned everything that I could because I realized that the better job I did, not only could I keep the lights on, the bare minimum, I could maybe hire more staff, I could attract more volunteers, I could have more programs. Every kid deserves a mentor. It doesn't matter if you're from a single parent family or not, like who in this room wouldn't love to have a mentor, an extra person in their life, a shoulder to lean on, that sort of thing. This was powerful stuff. I was deeply in love with my cause, very much obsessed, and I was fired up. And so I got right in there and I'm happy to report that I was a relatively quick study and with a lot of support from friends and mentors, we did uh, manage to raise more money and help more kids. And it's still my favorite charity. It's my charity of choice, but I don't work there anymore. I'm still in touch. I'm actually a big myself. I volunteer at a school, um, but I've gone on to fundraise for other causes. However, I remember that feeling that I had, that, that love, that fire in my belly. And I said to myself, I need to be very careful because I don't think now that I've learned how to use these powers of persuasion that we call fundraising, I don't think that you can just wield this sword around wildly. You got to be selective. You have to be genuine about your cause. There has to be an authentic passion there. And so I've tried to be very selective to make sure that I really believe in what I'm doing as a fundraiser. So In closing, I think what I want to say is that I think when you take people like us, fundraisers, who are willing to put themselves out there and try and inspire donors, and we match ourselves up with some good education and development like this, but even almost more importantly, we make sure that we are fundraising and representing a cause that we believe in, we are like magicians. We can make the magic. Or as my four-year-old daughter, uh, Emily, would say, because we watch Cinderella every 48 hours, we're, we're like a fairy godmother. We are the grantor of wishes, the bringer of dreams, or like former little brother and former Blue Jay, Josh Donaldson would say, the bringers of rain. That's us. So uh, in closing, I would say to you tonight, Uh, Open your hearts to your causes. Don't be afraid to just sink in deep, fall head over heels in love, and uh, like my daughter would say, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Thanks. Thank
0: you, Jarvis. Um, That story reminds me of uh, the T-shirt I chose to wear tonight. Um, I'm sure some of you are like, what does that say? Um, It says, be the Leslie Nope of whatever you do. Um, For those of you who don't get the reference, it's from Parks and Recreation, the character that Amy Poehler plays, um, who I am a combination of that and Liz Lemon from 30 Rock. Um, The... uh, (laughs) The Leslie Nope in me is the aggressive binder keeping and all of the, uh, the notes. Uh, Maeve Strathy, who is going to be fundraising chair for uh, 2019, asked me to come over and, and talk to her about how I planned for Congress and I showed up with a full binder and everything was in sleeves and she couldn't stop laughing at me. So, former librarian. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much, Jarvis. Uh, our next speaker tonight uh, is Gloria He. Uh, She is the Development Coordinator of Philanthropy at the Art Gallery of Ontario. I had the pleasure of personally coaching Gloria, um, and she actually ended up introducing me to a new coffee spot in my neighborhood, which is arguably, maybe not arguably, way too cool for me. Um, So her story is one that connects um, to my heart, uh, as mentorship is something that I am extremely passionate about. So welcome Gloria.
4: Wow, I'm loving how bright it is up here. (laughs) Good evening, everyone. So a little bit about myself. I spent about six years studying Art History Museum in the States. When I was finally done, my biggest hope was to work in the arts. Makes sense, right? To make my money and efforts worthwhile. My family, however, was a little concerned. They were worried that I might become one of those starving artists. I somehow managed to impress them by landing a fundraising job at a theater in Vancouver. Hashtag, she persisted. (laughs) So without much hesitation or option, I moved to West Coast, Canada to start my first fundraising job. And that was five years ago. Much has changed, including obviously the fact that I'm no longer there. But before I start asking you all for locals' favorite restaurants in Toronto, let me take you back for a few moments in Vancouver and share with you a love story on mentorship. So while I was learning lots about fundraising at the theater, in the back of my mind, I knew I wanted to do something visual art related. When the opportunity finally arrived that I can work for an art and design university, I was like, hell yeah. (laughs) Raising money to support emerging artists and designers and being exposed to creativity every day? Yes, please. So I was ready to get my hands dirty and conquer the entire fundraising world with my new teammates. One month into my job, my direct manager resigned. So now what? I was secretly hoping that over time, She and I could bond, and our relationship would evolve, and she might become a mentor for me. By that time, I hadn't really had anyone to ask for advice or career guidance in the fundraising field. So I was excited for the possibility, but now it just all became a wish. As I was tackling the first major challenge in my new role, my new boss started. The first time I met Christy, it was pretty close to love at first meeting. (laughs) As a hospital fundraising veteran with international working experience, she definitely knew what she was talking about. But more than that, she's wonderfully funny and so easy to talk to. A few months after Christy started, we had an opportunity to work on a crowdfunding project to support the university's multi-year, multi-million capital campaign. The idea is to invite alumni to claim seats in the new campus theater as a way for them to continue their legacy and start a new chapter with their school. When Christy shared the news with me that she and I will be leading the initiative, I was thrilled, of course, for the opportunity to learn something new, but also for the opportunity to work closely with Christy. I had a feeling that this could be an important milestone in my relationship with her. So we start doing everything we can, researching best practices, bouncing ideas off each other, agreeing, disagreeing. It kind of reminded me of the days in university when I was studying for finals with my besties. But there were also times I really needed Christie's help. Like when I found it really challenging to collaborate effectively with the external platform partner, Indiegogo. Instead of taking it over and just doing it herself, Christy actually spent time listening to me, giving me constructive feedback and letting me try again. She said, the best way for you to improve is that you actually get to do it and learn through the process. So preparation for the project took about two months. Right before Christine and I could raise our champagne glasses and toast to our achievement while chanting the magic line, we did it, the project was shut down. It was shut down because a major donor who had the exclusive naming right to the theater didn't agree with our plan. There seemed to be no value for them to Allow alumni to participate and name CC in their theater. Out of all the endings I had imagined for the project, this was none of them. So two months of hard work just went down the drain, and did we do all of that for nothing? Not for nothing, Christy said. They can take away the project, but not what you and I have learned. And when the next opportunity comes up, you better do an even better job. And then she gave me a hug. Now about two years later, she and I don't live in the same city anymore. Even though we don't talk as often, I still adore her deeply. And for all the things I have learned from working with Christy, I'm hoping one day I get to transfer that to my next mentorship experience and create new love stories. Thank you all so much for listening.
0: Absolutely, good job. Well done. That is a true love story with a mentor. Um, I'm going to fill a little time and give our judges a second to get caught up here and tell you a story of, uh, of my own mentorship-wise. Um, I just was at uh, IFC and was very, very lucky to be selected to be part of the I Wish I Thought of It series, and having never spoken at IFC, they give you a mentor. Um, and it works very much like Tonight does in terms of quick hits of, of, of stories. And so um, I was assigned Simon Scriber, who, those of you in the room who know who that is, international speaker, man of mystery. And I was over the moon that I would get someone like that to coach me. So we get to IFC and we go into a quiet conference room and I run through it and uh, I stumble a bunch and I get so flush, and he gives me such great feedback and, and you know the pressure of having Simon Scriber stare at you while you 're talking it 's too much pressure. Um. So I leave and I'm I'm beelining it back to my hotel room to practice because I think, oh no, I'm gonna fail tomorrow. I can't fail in front of Alice Ferris, my fundraising crush, that can't happen. Um, And I see Cashel, my boss, and Maeve, my colleague, kind of sitting off to the side and they see me and I am fluorescent red. Um, just so upset and uh, they start talking to me and they figure out what's going on and just Maeve and Cashel both look at me at the same time and they go you need a beer and the moral of that story is that sometimes mentorship is alcohol and uh, it did actually help calm me down and uh, get me through it so it comes in all shapes and sizes Gus. Um so let's uh, do one more speaker, and then we'll have a, a bit of an intermission, because you all need your drinks refilled. So up next uh, is Shobi Sivaraj, who is the annual fund advisor at CUSO International. Uh, so Shobi and I have become friends over the last year of knowing one another, uh, and she has taught me so much about viewing the world from different lenses. Um, She recently became a fellow in the AFP Fellowship for Diversity and Inclusion, and I know she will be a huge asset to the program. She is a fabulous fundraiser and someone who uh, is about to take the speaking world by storm. So welcome, Shobi.
2: Where are you from? It's a question I've been asked all my life and one that I never seem to have the right answer to. The people asking, usually within the first few minutes of meeting me, um, are actually trying to figure out what my heritage is. But that's never the question that they ask. And even if it was, it wouldn't change the implication. Whether they realize it or not, they're looking at the color of my skin and they're putting me in a box. And I hate boxes. But we're here to talk about love, aren't we? So while that question has been the source of much frustration for me, it's also at the core of my love story. My love is for the human story. More specifically, each person's unique story. Understanding and accepting them for who they are and who they want to be. Now you might be wondering, doesn't every fundraiser love that? And yes, I hope that's true. But I'd like to share how this love has not only been a driving force in my life, but also a constant battle. Like any good love story, my relationship with storytelling has been a complicated one, a struggle between my head and my heart. Let me first share a bit of my own life story. And as a child of immigrants, that begins with the journey. My parents and two sisters left Sri Lanka in the early 80s, spent a few years in Nigeria, and then arrived in Halifax, where I was born. Obviously, that's when the fun started. (laughs) Um, But in those early years, my parents had to really focus on making enough to house and feed three children, so passing on our language and culture wasn't top of mind. I could point to Sri Lanka on a map, and I could definitely tell you about my favorite curries, but that was where my knowledge ended. Truthfully, all I knew of where I was from were the little bits and pieces that I saw in the news or in National Geographic. But when I was eight, my parents saved enough for a first trip to Sri Lanka. It's when I got to finally meet my grandparents, and I also got to see where my parents grew up. It was a month-long affair. It was nothing like what I had seen on TV. Instead, it was a contradiction. My extended family were living in what seemed like luxury to me, much better than how we were living in Canada at the time. And yet, the huge gap between the rich and the poor was staring me in the face on every street corner. When we'd get in the car, dozens of kids would run up asking for food or money. These kids were the same age as me, but I knew that they'd endured things I'd never be able to understand. My parents could have probably lived a pretty good life in Sri Lanka, but they chose to leave at a time where there was a lot of civil unrest because they were worried for our safety and because they wanted us to live our lives in whatever way we wanted to. Like many immigrants, they chose to leave everything they knew behind because of their love for us. And that act of love taught me how important it is for everyone to have access to those same rights and privileges, no matter where they live. It also spurred my love for travel, and for all the different people around the world. This love has stayed with me through my life, and over the past eight years, it's been the driving force for me needing to tell the stories of people around the world. People who are fighting for their rights every day, who are building up their communities, and who are giving their children access to health and education. They're my personal heroes, and I see it as my mission to connect Canadian donors to these heroes. So while these heroes are in my heart, there's a whole other battle going on in my head. Storytelling is all about creating that personal connection, and in fundraising, it's about communicating in a language that the average Canadian will understand. This tends to create a bit of a struggle and an us-versus-them mentality between programming and fundraising folks. Programming staff are dedicated to the people we serve, and they can sometimes get frustrated with how we as fundraisers simplify the message. As fundraisers, we're just as committed to the people we're serving, and we show it by raising as much as we can. We're also committed to reporting back to our donors on the difference that they're making. I've often found myself stuck in the middle. I completely understand the concerns of the programming staff but I also trust the art and science of fundraising. I've worked for organizations where the projects and stories we tell are fueled by the people we serve, and I've taken pride in that. But because of my own story, I see that there's another layer to our storytelling that often gets overlooked. The stories that we choose to share with our donors are not only representing the people that we serve, but they're also representing the immigrants who've come from the countries where we work and who've come to Canada to build their lives here. By simplifying the message so that our donors will understand, we're also simplifying the life stories and experiences of these immigrants. We're putting them in a box. And at a time when the other is so often discarded and misunderstood, We can be perpetuating stereotypes that we're so often fighting against. So for me, it's been important to find a way to fight against this. And the and although sorry, one second. (laughs) Um, so, So for me, it's been important to fight against this. And I've been wondering, how do we move forward? So while in fundraising it's all about testing, usually what we do is we test and we see what our donors are responding to and that's usually what makes the final decision. But should we always be playing to the majority in order to raise the most funds or should we instead be finding opportunities for us to educate our donors on the complex realities of the people who are coming from these countries. I don't have answers to these questions, but I am trying to figure out a way to reconcile my head and my heart. I think it's important for us to think about the larger effect of the stories that we're telling, and when something doesn't feel right, we need to speak up. I also think it's important for us to consider our larger donor base that's becoming more and more diverse. As as this donor base becomes more and more diverse, it's gonna be important for us to reconsider how we're telling our stories and looking at a different way of framing them. In order for us to do that well, we need to have more diverse perspectives at the decision-making table so they can help guide us through these decisions. My hope is that one day, instead of asking, where are you from, we'll be asking, what's your story? And the answer won't need to fit in a box. Thank you.
5: <laughs> Nailed it.
2: So good.
0: what I tell ya? Now you all have something to talk about at break. So it is 7 p.m. on the dot, according to my watch. So you have 15 minutes for bio break, get a drink, get back to your seat, and we have four more amazing stories after the break. Enjoy. This episode of the Speaker Discovery Series podcast is brought to you by the Sponsorship Collective. The Sponsorship Collective are experts in corporate sponsorships, event sponsorship, asset development, asset valuation, inventory development, and sponsorship strategy. Their sponsorship consulting agency helps sponsors and sponsorship properties around the world exceed their objectives and secure optimum value for their assets. Visit sponsorshipcollective.com to learn more. Welcome back. We are all refreshed and ready for the second half and the bar will be open after the show as well for those of you who are interested and for the nervous speakers who aren't drinking in advance. As you know, tonight is our big pre-Congress event, uh, and uh, we're all very excited about this year's Congress with the theme of disruption, uh, and things are changing uh, very fast and furiously with Congress, which is exciting. Um, as I said, I just came back from IFC and I'm going to tell a little story about our, um, VP of education from the board, uh, of AFP. That's Amy Pollock, who's here tonight. Um, so when we were in the Netherlands, Amy had a great idea. Um, let's go for a bike ride. It's very Dutch. We'll ride to the sea. It'll be lovely. And I thought, I cycle all the time. I'm totally in Amy. Cool. Let's do this. So we rent the bikes, and they're very European, large handlebar bikes, um, quite heavy. And as we get on the bikes, Amy says, I haven't ridden a bike in 25 years. (laughs) And I say, oh, okay. Um, So we get going, and uh, she does a few circles in the parking lot. She was killing it, guys. She was killing it. Um, But as we start riding down the road, we realize the the directions that the the gentleman at the desk had given us uh, were to go down quite narrow roads, and there are big uh, trucks driving up and down these roads because it's all floral farms everywhere. So I can hear the truck coming behind me, and Amy is in front of me, and we're single file because we follow the law. And um, I move over, and Amy fell into the bushes. Um, It was, she will tell you this, a calculated move um, because she thought, well, I have two choices, get hit by a truck or fall in the bushes. Did not think, maybe I could just stay upright. Um, So after that, I filmed her riding the bike and she killed it. So I don't have any footage or proof of it, but she has bruises she will show you if you want to talk to her later about anything to do with AFP or cycling. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) Love you, Amy. <laughs> That's my Congress connection. Um, so the first speaker of our second half, let's do this. Her name is Catherine verheggen Rotus, and I am proud to say she has just started her new role as Foundation's Major Gifts and Planned Giving Officer at the YWCA in Toronto. I am particularly proud of Catherine because she graduated from last year's Humber College uh, Management Program. Um, And uh, she was a star from the moment that Sam Barr and I, who run the mentorship program, met her. Uh, And I'm so happy to share that stardom with you this evening. Uh, Catherine's story is one uh, that is likely to hit you in the feels, as the kids say. Uh, And I hope you will welcome her with open hearts and open arms. Welcome, Catherine. Aw shucks. Thanks, Laura.
6: Yeah. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, I'm gonna bring down the mood a bit, but um, I assure you I'm fine, everybody's fine. But yeah, okay. So um a year ago I sat in a developmental pediatrician's office at Holland View, assessing the significant movement, emotional response, and speech and language delays in my son. And when I heard the word autism spectrum, I felt as if the air had been sucked out of my lungs and I was sitting in a vacuum. And at the time, I really didn't understand much about autism spectrum disorder. Now, as a grant writer, my mind quickly cycled through the list of agencies that the pediatrician provided And I started to think about, okay, what can I secure for speech therapy, occupational therapy, physiotherapy? But I still felt short of breath. So I looked to my son, who sat oblivious. He was cool because he was playing with his wooden cars. And I just stroked his face. And my breathing slowed. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was the day I decided to become a fundraiser. I was already in the middle of a career change. Um, And I was at a point as a new parent that I wanted to align my personal values with my professional interests. So two months later, I was in the Humber program. But I found that a parallel theme emerged in, um, in my work at school and at home. Because as my vocabulary expanded, talking about donors and beneficiaries and different kinds of charitable giving, I was helping my son to expand his. Spending a lot of time in speech therapy, working on articulation together working on articulating his ideas and needs. And at Humber, I spent a lot of time learning about donor communication and the power of emotion. And that often what could happen was that a strong, visceral, emotional response to a situation would be what would prompt a gift, and in particular a transformational gift. So I spent a lot of time learning to speak and write in a way to elicit those strong emotional responses. But as I was working on that kind of communication, I was helping my son negotiate his own emotional responses because a child with autism will often have great difficulty understanding and navigating um, emotions like fear and sadness and anxiety to a much greater intensity than a child without that disorder. And the reason that I make that comparison is because I I knew that my son would have more difficulty moving from the safe and supportive environment of daycare to a new and strange environment of kindergarten so I, um, I spent a, a few days, well, a number of days just feeling afraid. I was very worried about him. And I was worried that he was going to spend his time at school, sitting alone in his cubby, coat still buttoned, alone, head down, feeling lost, feeling that there was no one he could talk to, no one familiar who could understand him and understand what he was going through. Feeling the same way that in the first couple of weeks of daycare that the only way that I could leave him was for a teacher to grab him, to hold him close, comfort him while he was red-faced, screaming, and arms flailing. I was worried that he'd be terrified. And I was worried that he'd feel that I abandoned him. But, like with any great change, it, it did take some time. And yeah, there were days when he sat with his little coat buttoned up, alone in his cubby. But again, with any great change, he surprised and he challenged me. He um, Eventually he joined the group activities and he started making friends. So all the while, I took him back and forth to speech, occupational, and physiotherapy on days off, in the evenings, in the weekends. Um, But it it was hard because I had a long commute and I had a lot of group projects to finish when I got home, usually on a daily basis. Um, But at the same time, I had a steady stream of paperwork to fill out on his behalf notes to the teacher, um, reports to shuttle back and forth between physicians. And um, even though I, I had the loving support of a partner and of my family, there just weren't enough hours in the day. So I slept probably an average of four to five hours a night. But in the midst of all that, He and I talked a lot about feelings. About fear, anxiety, and sadness. And um, on the advice of the speech therapist, we worked with simple language at first. I'd offer him choices if I saw him upset. I said, okay, do you feel mad or sad? And eventually he began to feel comfortable choosing one over the other option. And from there we could build. From there we could build more elaborate, detailed, emotional responses, like I'm mad that he yelled at me or I'm mad that he took my truck. So he began to tell me more about his day and he began to tell me more about how he felt. And most importantly, he began to tell his teachers how he felt when I wasn't there. Because the goal really was never to avoid meltdowns. It was to give him the tools to better articulate um, what he was feeling so he could problem solve, how to deal with those meltdowns when they occurred, what those triggers were. And there were difficult days, but he was able to secure some support at school for those days that I couldn't be there, that I couldn't be there to support him, for those days that he felt afraid, and I felt afraid for him. And it was a disruptive time, but it was a time of great reflection because it became impossible to talk about fear and sadness and anxiety on a regular basis with him without doing a lot of self-critical examination of my own about how I negotiated feelings, how I negotiated stress. And I think it would be a really great disservice if I told you today that the learning that we experienced was all one way, that it was me teaching him or the speech therapist teaching him. It was also me learning from him and learning some challenging things, like how to deal with my own emotions and, quite frankly, how to deal with my own chronic depression. So I will leave you today with some words from him because irregardless of speech and the ability to articulate in that way, he's always communicated to me a deep sense of compassion and care. One day he said to me, don't be sad, be mommy. Thank you.
0: How do you follow that? One of the things we have um, new at Congress this year, uh, which relates to Catherine's story, is uh, a Tough Topics track. Um, Something that uh, was piloted out of the Education Committee this year, and so we're gonna talk about some of the stuff we think about a lot but need to talk about more. Uh, Things like sexual harassment um, are, are on the docket, and feminism. Um, This is kind of new territory to be covering at Congress in a new way Um, and I really encourage you when you're you're looking through your session selections and thinking about what you want to see at Congress um, to think critically about whether these tough topics are are hitting you uh, in your workplace or if maybe you hadn't realized that they were. Um, There is, I I think, six total of them and I think uh, a huge benefit to everyone uh, to attend those kinds of sessions. Our next speaker uh, this evening uh, is from Stephen Thomas and I uh, neglected to shout out another one of our Stephen Thomas alums earlier, so Shidel, I understand you came in late, Uh, she was season two I believe of uh, SDS, season one, sorry. and now one of her colleagues, uh, Dana Bronstetter, uh, who is an account coordinator at Stephen Thomas. Uh, Dana's story is something I think we can all relate to um, and perhaps uh, more of this time of year than others, uh, but as an imp- uh, it is an important topic that we uh, need to talk about more as a sector. So thank you for taking the stage tonight, Dana, to tell your story. Welcome, Dana.
5: Hi, everyone. Um, So this is a story about giving love a second chance. So my story starts as I came out of university with a pretty vague degree in media. (laughs) As you can imagine, when it came time to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up, I was pretty lost and not really sure where to start. Um, So I complained to my sister-in-law, who sat me down and said... Well, let me ask you a question. If you won the lottery tomorrow, and you didn't have to work ever again, what would you do with your time? So I said to her, I would probably want to work in a charity or volunteer somewhere. So she said, okay, that's easy, and showed me Charity Village. (laughs) So as I started looking at Charity Village, within five minutes, a media coordinator position popped up for an environmental nonprofit. The posting basically jumped off the page. I would be using a large format printer to print large sets, um, doing stock imagery research, doing web design, and taking photos. It was basically what I studied at school. But the thing that really excited me about that position was that I would be teaching kids about the environment and about animals. And I was basically one of those kids growing up. Uh, I remember being in fifth grade, being one of the only kids who seemed to know what endangered species were and would talk to my parents about animals from around the world that they'd never heard of. Um, So, of course, I had to apply. I applied that day, got my first interview, then my second, and within the week had the job. I loved it. It was everything my ten-year-old self could think of. I was so cool. (laughs) Um, We would film everywhere in the GTA, in greenhouses and plains and forests, and I got to take photos of rare animals and research everything about them. And I was like a celebrity to kids. I would just walk down the street and be like, oh, I'm from this organization. And be like, that's so cool. I see them on TV. Um, So I I really, really loved working there. And one of my craziest experiences there was I had to do a photo shoot with the lynx who rubbed against my leg like a pet cat, which seems pretty terrifying because that cat could kill me. Uh, But I was elated. I I loved every minute of it. Um, But of course, it was a job. So it wasn't all cool animals and adventures in the background. Um, From the beginning, I had a hard time with one of my coworkers who regularly put me down and condescended to me. Um, But really, the main thing that stuck out to me was this task that I got assigned and started in September and didn't finish until January of the following year. The task was to sort through boxes and boxes and boxes of pins. And so every day I'd have to go down into this isolated, freezing cold concrete room and sort through individual designs of pins by box and weigh them container by container as I could hear the bird shrieks in the rooms beside me. And it was really lonely, and I... I basically didn't know who to turn to, so that December, I had told my my coworkers. I spoke to them, saying, "You know, this is really impacting my mental health, and I don't think that I should be doing this anymore." I was, and I didn't have an HR department to turn to. They said, "Keep doing it. You're almost done." Um, every day, I would battle anxiety not being able to get off of my bedroom floor from nausea. Um, so that, that January was when it really stuck out to me that I didn't have that love anymore, like there was no spark, and I kept trying to go to work and feeling that spark and revamp the love, but it was just gone. And in January was when I made the decision, I, I have to leave, this is not a place for me anymore. So, as I, conf- I, I felt pretty bitter when I was leaving because I had to leave my dream job due to no HR department to bring these, these types of grievances to. And I felt that no other nonprofits would have an HR department. So I, I said to myself, I'm never, ever going to work in a nonprofit ever again, thinking that I would risk a similar outcome. So as I left and confronted the idea of what to do when I grew up again, uh, I ended up at a corporate job, making the things that killed the animals and the environment that I love within it. Every day I walked in and felt like I was trading my soul to the devil. It was a rite of passage to cry on the job there because of stress and horrible timelines. And I would hear things like, so-and-so's a real project manager now. They had their first cry today. You can imagine that wasn't a very supportive work environment. (laughs) Um, And I just didn't feel any joy or love when I worked there. I felt like I needed to give back to the world in some way. And I just wasn't getting that there. And everyone was just, it was everyone for themselves. No one was patting you on the back, no one was giving you any words of encouragement. It was just, go do your work, work here forever, and come home and be very upset. So every day I would come through the door and discuss with my partner the daily upsets and get home at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, working around the clock was not not a good place for me, and I really started to see it impact every aspect of my life. It was really starting to impact even my relationship. I I worried that my partner would not stay with me much longer because I didn't see him very often. And I know I knew that I had to just find something that would give me that joy again so that I didn't lose the important people in my life, my partner and myself. So... I said to myself, I have to go back to a nonprofit. It will definitely be more supportive. So I was sporadically looking for a job and happened upon a job at Stephen Thomas, which is an integrated media agency that um, does um, advertising or direct mail for nonprofits to fundraise. I applied that night and got a call back the next day and I felt like I could rest a little easier and feel like I wasn't going to cry every single day at this new job. So as you can probably guess, I got the job. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And the first week was a bit of a whirlwind, but one thing really stuck out to me that first week I remember we were interviewing a beneficiary for a direct mail piece. And it was a very loving and touching story about a husband and his wife. And everyone at the table was crying, including me. And I remember afterwards, my coworker patting me on the back and saying that people at Stephen Thomas are very generous with our tears and with our feelings. And I'm sure everyone's in fundraising for that reason. We feel very deeply. And I just felt very supported. And so that night I went home and I was talking about how great my job was and shedding a few happy tears. Finding a job and a a workplace where you love what you do is really tiring and can be very difficult. And some people will never experience that feeling. But when you do land a job that you love or a workplace that you love, it's like winning the lottery. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dana. Great story. Um, I think it would be, I would be remiss if we had a story about love and I didn't tell you a story about the one true love of my life, um, committee work. Um, LAUGHTER uh, as my my fellow colleagues at uh, Blakely and my actual husband like to remind me, I have a bit of an addiction to committees, um, and the reason for that is uh, I actually have no idea. Um, I just absolutely love it, and my love for Congress itself—see, connected it back—is um, is is really uh, it's deep for me, and I think part of that comes from just the the feeling in this room tonight. And the feeling that I get from being in the sessions with other fundraisers and learning from other great fundraisers, the the fundraising power in this room and the the titans of some of the fundraisers in this room tonight, we are we are blessed to all be here together. Um and and Congress is that for me too. And so when I get to be on a committee, and I do say get to, um with folks uh, like those of you in this room, I just am so so grateful and uh, wish that all for you to have that same love. Honestly, also love my husband, but you know, he's not here. Um, nobody tell him, don't give yeah, hashtag don't tell Phil is the joke we have at work. Every time I do something that Phil will not approve of, I just turn to whomever I'm standing near and say, hashtag don't tell Phil, um, it's not that often. Nobody let him listen to this podcast. Uh, okay, up next, uh, Adam Stewart. And Adam is a consultant at KCI. Um, Adam is one of those folks who, I actually always have a tinge of imposter syndrome when I see him, because uh, he does so much volunteering and has such strong involvement in the sector that I think, hey, I could be doing more. Um, so I'm so excited, <laughs> it's true. I do. Adam, stop it. Uh, I'm so excited that he's decided to step into the speaking world uh, and share his voice and experience because he has so much to offer. So welcome, Adam.
7: So, Laura, you're not the only one who's creating committee widowers. The... This is interesting, the eye roll emoji was created specifically for my boyfriend to use when I text him and say, don't forget, I have a board meeting tonight, I have a committee meeting tonight, (sighs) which one is this? I'm going to use notes tonight because I do not love my memory. All right, Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, My story is actually a superhero origin story. But not the kind you'd expect. It's the story of the bystander whose life has changed through an encounter with a superhero. The twist is that superhero is philanthropy and everyone who's made a donation and changed a life. (laughs) I'm going to tell you how demonstrations of this love of humanity brought me to fundraising. Like the bystander in a superhero movie, the first encounter was unexpected, but caused a ripple effect of love throughout the universe, changing more and more lives for the better. I actually just want to add to this, um, in case you haven't picked up on this already, I'm also on the board of a film festival, so there might be some film references. So I had just graduated from university. I knew that I wanted to help people, but I didn't know what that would look like maybe being a social worker, but could I see myself on the front line? Was it the right path for me? I wanted to find out. I was in my early 20s and still a youth, so I started volunteering on the phone line for the LGBT youth line, which provides peer support to lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, and questioning youth. The training was extensive and exhaustive. We covered the various topics that might come up on a call and how to handle that, how to help people, guiding them in a way that was meaningful and beneficial to them. The training ran the gamut from dealing with peer pressure to how to handle callers in a crisis. And then it was time to get on the phone and start taking some calls. I could feel my love of humanity's superpowers taking hold now, this is the part in the movie where the, the hero learns what they're capable of, usually through like an upbeat montage. <laughs> I'm not going to do that tonight. <laughs> While volunteering on the line, I spoke with people going through some of the most challenging circumstances, questioning their identity, facing harassment, living with unsupportive parents or having issues with friends. But I could see the difference we were having. I could see progress being made, whether someone was calling for the first and only time, or if they were a regular caller. There was one turning point I remember that helped reinforce what the love of humanity can achieve. We had a regular caller, someone living in an area where she didn't have a lot of support, not out to her family or friends, and in need of guidance to help her navigate her life. I want you to picture yourself in her shoes, and maybe there's a moment in your life you can draw from. You're young, questioning who you are in the face of a community that says who you are is wrong. You have nobody to turn to. You're alone. But there's one lifeline for you, a phone number and an understanding voice on the other end. Over time, you make incremental progress. You become more confident and comfortable with who you are. You become happier. Your gratitude goes out to the voice on the phone but really it's the donors that made this possible. They supported the youth line by funding everything from volunteer training to keeping the lights on and the phone bill paid. This is what philanthropy achieves. Everything we were able to do was made possible because someone cared, because someone gave to the cause. It was through experiences like this that I knew that my path would be going to would be to go into the nonprofit sector and help people. Through fundraising, I'm able to help nonprofits raise money and connect people with the causes they care about. This experience started me on a lifelong journey, and I'm eternally grateful. More importantly, the training and experiences I had on the youth line stayed with me for years to come proving that philanthropy leaves an indelible mark. Eventually, I became too, too old to volunteer on the youth line. My time as a youth had officially ended. But a couple of years after I left, uh, a close friend was diagnosed as HIV positive. We were both in shock, taken aback by this unexpected news, He was utterly devastated and didn't know what to do, where to turn to. But I had my training and experiences to draw from and quickly sprang into action. I could be there for him in his time of need, be a stable presence and guide him to the right direction and the resources that could help. I think about that often. What if I didn't have my experiences to draw from? What if I hadn't been properly trained in how to handle situations like this? What if nobody was there to support the youth line and keep it going? Where would people be? Donors might not always see the impact of their support. It might not be top of mind for them, but I can guarantee you that it's being felt day after day in the lives they touch without even knowing it. The Youth Line only existed and was only able to provide these services because of philanthropy, because donors understood the need and stepped up to make donations and give their support. Now, with changes to the sex ed curriculum that will leave people vulnerable, and by vulnerable, I mean very vulnerable, I've returned the favor and stepped up with a monthly donation to help give back and support the Youth Line's services. And to that point, I'd like to leave you all with a challenge. See the love around you. Feel moved by it. And then pay it forward and spread the love of humanity. Be the superhero. That's what philanthropy and fundraising are all about. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Adam. Uh, I assume Monday nights will work for you for a support group for our spouses is that uh, we'll just we'll get them sorted, then we won't have to hear whats for dinner. Um, just going to give the judges a moment to get uh, caught up uh, and tell you about uh, just a small love that I currently have. Um, one of my clients uh, is in the audience tonight, actually a couple are, but uh, Jason Novelli, who works at Diabetes Canada. Um, He is a a dear friend and also a client and knows of a deep, deep love I have for their CEO. Um, Her name is Dr. Jan Hux, and Dr. Jan Hux married late in life and has uh, four children uh, through the marriage and I think eight or ten grandchildren, has a degree from Harvard, a medical degree on top of that, and is the world's nicest person. And I just want to be Jan, and every time I see her, I light up, like not in a way anywhere near, like I light up when I see, you know, my husband, um, (laughs) Dr. Jan is something else. And, uh, we actually, um, surprised Jason for his birthday with some donuts. Um, and, uh, Jan poked her head in just as we were singing happy birthday to Jason. And I got a picture of her head with the head poked in and I just kept zooming that photo and showing it to people. I was like, Jan was there. Um, so, you know, love has uh, all kinds of forms. Um, Dr. Jan, we're at our last speaker. Can you believe it? So our next speaker, uh, I really struggled uh, with how to introduce him. Byron Albalos is the Director of Development at Studio 180 Theater. And all I kind of settled on saying is that, uh, Byron, the committee and I thank you for sharing the story you're about to share. It's very brave, Byron.
8: On Sunday, July 22nd, 2018, my cousin was shot on the Danforth. It was a a night that would forever change her life. And I could have never guessed that despite the chaos, uh, fear and pain, that love Would overcome. Here's what happened. It was a warm Sunday evening and my cousin Danielle or as some call her Danny was with her boyfriend Jerry treating a friend out to dinner for her birthday. They were on the patio of their favorite Italian restaurant in the neighborhood when suddenly one of the servers rushed everyone inside. Something was happening on the street. They were waiting for a word about what was happening when a woman came into the restaurant saying there was a girl on the street who had been shot. Jerry, an ER nurse, knew he could help and sprung into action, exiting through a side door. A few steps out of the door, Jerry turns and makes eye contact with the shooter. He hears a clicking sound and then sees his arms raised towards him. He ducks behind a patio table as shots fire, then a terrible scream. Danny was shot in the doorway of the restaurant. She was right behind him, rushing to help. Jerry carries her back inside, helped by others, and begins administering first aid. Within two minutes. The police arrive, it all happened so fast. Danny was the last civilian shot that evening on the Danforth, an evening where 12 others were injured and two young women lost their lives. I wanna tell you more about my cousin, Danny, not the victim, the person. Then a smile and infectious energy lights up every room. She's a lively, rambunctious and determined and ambitious young woman who worked as an ER clerk at Toronto East General Hospital and recently completed her first year studying nursing. Anyone who knows her knows that she's never still. She loves to travel, hike and dance and her natural generosity and warmth gives her that special ability to make everyone she meets feel important and loved. Opinionated and strong-willed, she always champions those in need. She calls me Kuya, which is a Filipino term for older brother or male cousin. Danny sustained a life-altering injury. The bullet punctured her diaphragm and stomach then struck and shattered her T11 vertebrae before exiting her chest wall. Her legs immediately went out under her and and she told her boyfriend three things. One, I can't feel my legs. This is the worst pain I've ever felt. And it's not your fault. She was in a, a medically induced coma for 11 days at St. Michael's Hospital and she underwent four major surgeries and was in the ICU for 2 weeks. Her prognosis is that she is not expected to walk again. I found out that she was shot the day after it happened. I got a, a text message from my sister and when I was able to make it to the hospital, I walked into a, a somber waiting room and there were a cousins a couple of Danny's friends, aunts, and Jerry, uh, Danielle's boyfriend. Now, I I had only met Jerry once before, and the last time I met him was the same time I saw Danielle, which was at a a cousin's karaoke night. And I think the reason I didn't remember him was probably because he wasn't clamoring to get the mic like the rest of us, uh, because our family takes karaoke seriously. (laughs) I had no idea then that I'd eventually get really close to this young man from a small town of 47 people in rural Newfoundland. The theme of tonight is love and I can't tell Danny's story without also talking about Jerry and their relationship. My wife Andrea and I have been able to bear witness to some of the most beautiful acts of love we invited Jerry to stay in the second bedroom of our condo since we lived only a couple of blocks away from the hospital. He stayed for us for uh, over a month and we got to know each other very well. The word we use most to describe him is devoted. Since that night, Danielle has been his number one priority and he has done everything possible to ensure she has the best chance to live a full and comfortable life. Jerry confided in us about the guilt he felt that Danielle went out because of him. He told us that his biggest fear was that our family would hate him and that we would blame him for what happened. He told us about how he planned to take a year off to care for Danny and make sure she was okay. It has been a privilege to bear witness to their love in some of the most personal and ordinary ways. When I found out what happened, I knew I had to do something to help. I've been working in development for the past five years and my background is as an artist. I'm an actor and a playwright. And I thought, maybe this is why I fell into fundraising in the first place. To be in a position to help my cousin right now by helping to tell her story. Four days after she got shot, I launched a GoFundMe campaign called Danny Strong which I chose to complement the uh, Danny Danforth strong hashtag that had become so popular. In consultation with Jerry, her friends and family, I wrote down her story, and we decided to set a goal of trying to raise $25,000. The family asked me to be the media spokesperson, so I went on CBC's The National with Ian Hanamansing to, uh, to announce the launch of the campaign. We were uh, the first survivor story to go public we had no idea what would happen next. We quickly surpassed that goal overnight, and so we pushed the target again, and then again, and again, and again, and again. We stopped raising the target at 200000 but the campaign is still receiving donations and is currently at over $215,000. People have been and continue to be moved by her story and selflessness. We've received donations from all over the world. Her story was shared in faraway places like Trinidad, the Philippines, and it even spread through China's version of WhatsApp. The Philippine consul generally personally reached out and the consulate made a donation. Then came the fundraisers. There were bingo nights in Newfoundland, a golf tournament, bake sales, A theater festival taking up donations after every show, and the cutest fundraiser, kindergartners selling lemonade on the sidewalk to raise money for Danny. So much love and care from random strangers from across the city, country, and world. When she was ready to speak publicly and give interviews, my cousin didn't blame the shooter. Instead, She advocated for better support for those suffering from mental health issues and supported a ban on handguns. She knew now she had a platform. People felt like they knew her, and they wanted to hear what she had to say. She made sure to shut down Islamophobia and hate, and she chose to focus on love and empathy. So, what does Danny have planned now? She'll be discharged from the Spinal Cord Rehab Injury Center on Tuesday. And she'll be moving into a new place in Liberty Village with Jerry. Next year, she's planning to go back to school to become a nurse. We joke that she has the best job references she'll ever need. You need a character reference? Just Google my name. (laughs) Danny refuses to let her paraplegia get in the way of her happiness or the things she wants. She has the same spunk and enthusiasm for life that she's always had. And it's been so relieving and inspiring to see that she's still herself. And what did I learn from having a front row seat to all of this? I learned that our nature is to to love We want to help. We want to encourage. We want to be part of a community. And if we do what we do, when we can do it, no matter how much or how little that might be, it can change people's lives. We can connect our humanity with the humanity of others. And we can know that we are not alone and that we matter. Love is a choice we can make. And while it's not always easy, it's most certainly worth it. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you, Byron. There's uh, all kinds of napkins for anyone who needs to wipe some eyes, blow some noses after. I can tell some people. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: thank you. Yeah, no. It's OK. I'm going to wrap it up and we can all get drunk. Um, uh, <laughs> thank you. So that's it. We did it. Um, those are all of our wonderful speakers. Hard to believe they're first time speakers, right? Like, they were fabulous. So I just have a few quick housekeeping items, and then uh, I'll let you go. Um, For any of you in the audience tonight who are interested in getting the same coaching, the same opportunities, the speakers you've seen here tonight, uh, there will be a next installment of the Speaker Discovery Series. Uh, We're looking at spring, and we will keep you posted on theme and date. So that's exciting. I also have a ton of people to thank, and if the committee members would mind uh, joining me on stage here, uh, Jess Warbleski from the YW Kitchener-Waterloo. She keeps us organized and on track. Uh, Scott Jeffries, Director of Media and Data, Data Services at Stephen Thomas. He works on our marketing and communications. Samantha Barr, U of T, whose title's too long, coaches our speakers. Uh, and Mathoni had to go home, but she is our expert liaison. So thank you so much, guys. This doesn't happen without you. I'd also like to thank uh, the sponsor for tonight's event, uh, the aptly named Sponsorship Collective. So uh, thanks to Chris Baylis for that. Uh, To Cynthia, Stacey, and Jacqueline and the AFP staff, thank you for everything you do and and supporting me. Of course, thank you again to our scorers, Sonia, Juniper, Andrea. We quite literally don't have a a night without you, so thank you, thank you, thank you for coming and, and your dedication. Uh, Thanks to the Factory Theater and my new friend, the AV guy. Uh, Thank you, thank you for for having us. It's a beautiful space. I think we should come back here, yeah? Let's do that. Uh, and finally, thank you, supportive audience. Um, please spread the word. If you liked the event tonight, share the podcast when it comes out um, and uh, listen to the back episodes if you haven't heard it. Uh, again, consider to apply speaking. We want to hear from everybody. This is what it's for. Um, I know most of you are registered, but for those of you in the room who aren't registered for Congress, register today. It's it's a mistake not to go if you can afford to go. Um, it's a Congress like no other this year and now you have a room full of new friends who you can sit with at your tables uh, and talk about how great this night was Um, and uh, you can share some colleague love uh, as you're exiting tonight and and then when you see each other again at Congress so the bar will stay open till 10 I encourage you to stay mix mingle you can hang out in here you can hang out out there Um, come talk to us tell us what you thought uh, and thanks for coming And thank you, Laura, for being such an amazing MC.
8: Thank you, Laura. Give it up to Laura.